So if you'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42, that is where we will be at this evening. So remember where we're at in the story. Um, Joseph has been exalted and elevated to leadership in uh, Egypt. Um, and now the famine has begun and his brothers have come down to um, uh, or are about to come down um, to buy grain because they've heard that there's grain for sale in um, Egypt. We will... Uh, for our reading our passage, we'll start at verse 1 and go down through 17, and then I'll pause and pray, and then we'll sort of jump back into further stuff down the, the passage, because we're going to kind of basically use the whole chapter um, tonight as we talk about um, the idea of the, the change of heart that is elicited in in uh, the brothers um, during the events um, of this chapter. So it says in verse 1, it says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He, and he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was one, the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed, bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had, ha that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we are servants, our 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is, uh, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for a chance to open your word. God, for you to teach us from your word. Um, God, we thank you for the, the gospel ministry um, that has gone forth from pulpits in our community um, this Lord's day. God, we ask for your blessing on those congregations that you would use the preaching and teaching of your word. God, that you would use the Sunday school classes, that you would use the small groups. God, that you would use all those interactions that people have throughout the week. Um, 
Father, to not only build up those who are in Christ um, and and make them um, more faithful and and uh, more secure uh, in their callings, Lord, but we ask that you would use these uh, congregations and use these ministries to draw others into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, God, that they would faithfully um, teach and preach the word of God, that that individuals in those churches would faithfully go and share that word. God, that each day um, that we would look for opportunities um, to share with people the good news of Jesus Christ and how um, we can be freed um, from death and hell. God, that we can have victory over sin um, and how we can enter into relationship with Christ um, and know that we belong to him for eternity. Uh, God, help us to be uh, ambassadors of that message. Father, as we open your word and you teach us from it, um, use it to shape us in the image of Jesus Christ. God, as we look at the character of Joseph, Joseph, as we look how he um, prefigures and and um, is a type of Jesus Christ, um, God, let us um, see these things in Christ and um, apply them to our own lives. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is what we find um, the situation in with with Joseph. So he finds himself in a position where he has the opportunity to exact vengeance on these people who have been his enemies and betrayers. And so we should pause for just a second um, and and consider um, how significant that is, okay? Because I would argue that the desire for vengeance is one of the strongest impulses in the fallen human heart, all right? When we feel as though we have been wronged, there is something in us that wants others to get their comeuppance, right? Okay, we want other people, um, those who have sinned against us, those who have attacked us, those who have betrayed us, we want those people to, to answer for their um, for their sins. Now, on one side, obviously, that's a function of, of the justice of God that is a right impulse, right? We want to see um, sin um, punished. We want to see the those who were innocent and who were attacked. We want to see those people um, cared for. Um, we want justice to take place. Um, it, it, Christians sometimes get a little um, conflicted because they go, Ash, I don't know how I can pray for mercy and grace and at the same time pray for for justice. And the answer is we can do that actually. And the way we do that is by leaving those things in God's hands. Okay. Um, and that, that we have a role to play in all of this, but ultimately we recognize that God is the one who will deal with these issues in, in it's tempting to try and take on that role from God to seek to punish those who we feel like have, have sinned against us and who, um, are worthy of that judgment. Um, but again, because we are sinful creatures, we can't take that responsibility on. We're going to mess it up almost every single time. We have to hand that over to the proper authority, proper authorities. Ultimately, that's God, right? But beyond that, God has put the, the sword of justice and the sword of wrath into the hands of the governing authorities. And, and they are responsible for that, not me and you, right? So we hand these things over. If there has been sin committed, if there has been an attack made, we hand these over to the, th- the, the people and the institutions that God has ordained for the punishing of sin and for the outworking uh, of justice. 
Um, but, but we see the importance of that all throughout, particularly the Old Testament. Um, I came across a passage, so probably we are all familiar with in the New Testament, when Jesus says, is asked, what are the two greatest commandments? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, if you go back and look at the reference to that, it's in Leviticus 19, verse 18. And here's what the whole passage says. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so I'd never thought about the fact that that specific, the connection between um, not taking vengeance is, is right there in that passage, that Jesus uses to sum up literally half of the law, right? Um, we see all kinds of stories where, um, and again, types of Christ, I think, where people refrain from taking vengeance when they could. Probably the one that comes to mind um, most quickly is the story of David and Saul, where David has multiple opportunities to to um, enact vengeance upon Saul because he's been sinned against by Saul in any number of ways, and yet, he doesn't. And so in 1 Samuel 24, he says, may the Lord be judged between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Okay. So we, we, this, this idea of vengeance is sitting there in the background and all we can assume is that man, it, it, it would be very tempting for Joseph to, to be vengeful on his brothers. All right. And and he creates this scenario. Now, obviously, he's being sneaky with them. OK, he he knows who they are. He knows that they're telling the truth about the fact that they are brothers from one father and, and all these things. And yet we ask ourselves the question, well, what is he doing this for? Why is he creating this scenario where the brothers will have to go back and get their other brother and bring him and all these things? What What, what is he doing here? Well, I think there's probably multiple things going on. Obviously, on one side, he wants to see his younger brother, Benjamin. He wants to see his father again. But I think also what he's doing is he's trying to test his brothers. He is trying to see if in the years between the time when he was thrown in that pit and sold into slavery and and today, if if they had had a change of heart, if they have turned from their sin and and shown contrition and sorrow over what they've done, or if they are still as hateful and as jealous as they've always been. So in the passage that we just read, up through verse 17, it talks about the fact that he, he accuses them of being spies, and then he says, we're going to do something. All nine of you are going to go to prison, or nine of you are going to go to prison. One of you is going to get to go back to Canaan. And if you don't bring down your brother to me, then I'm going to count all of you as spies, and, and that's the case. Okay? But then something interesting happens. In verse 18, after those three days that the brothers are in prison, the story changes. Um, uh, Joseph changes his plan. Starting in verse 18, it says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. All right. So what happens is for some reason, we're not told specifically why, Joseph changes his plan. First plan is nine of you stay in prison, one of you goes home and brings back uh, uh, Benjamin. In the intervening time, he, he thinks better of it, decides, no, one of you will stay and nine 
of you will go. So why is that? Why does he change his plan? Well, we're not told in the text, but I have my own theory, and I think it plays out if what's going on in this passage is, is that Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they've had a change of heart. And this is what I think is going on. So if one brother goes home and nine are kept in prison, think about how that scenario would play out. One brother shows back up at Jacob's uh, tent and he says, Dad, I got bad news. Pharaoh captured and put in jail nine of my brothers. I'm the only one who he let come back. Everybody else is there, and of course, Jacob would be upset, but he'd say, Dad, it's okay, because all he wants is proof that we're telling the truth. And he says the proof that he will accept is if I take Benjamin down with me. If I'll do that, he'll let everybody go, and everything will be fine, okay? Well, here's the deal. If that's what had happened, I think the decision would have been a no-brainer. I think Jacob would have gone, I have just lost nine of my sons in one fell swoop. Like, they're all gone. And all I have to do is send this one son down there to get back the nine. And again, we know that he loves Benjamin very much, but he's, he's, if if you look at the calculus of it, the one versus the nine, I think Jacob is going to say, I guess we got to do it, right? We've got to send Benjamin back down um, and let this all work out. Okay. And I think that's why he switches it. Because I think what happens is he decides he's going to send the nine home, but only keep the one. Because when he does that, the entire equation shifts. Think about it. Suddenly the math won't add up so easily for Jacob, I don't think. I have lost one of my least favorite sons. But I can get him back by risking the life of my favorite son. I think the case is, is that in that scenario, Jacob would not be inclined to risk the life of Benjamin to save the life of Simeon. In fact, that's exactly what ends up happening. Basically, the brothers say, Dad, we've got to take Benjamin back. And he says, I am unwilling to risk the son I love for one of these sons that I don't love. And you remember, part of the reason why he didn't like Simeon is because Simeon was, along with Levi, was the one who was involved in that whole thing where they broke into the city and and, and murdered everybody. And so uh, Simeon is not on good terms with his father. And so I think, um, I think Joseph um, knows what's going to happen. Okay, and he knows that this will be the case, that his father will probably not let Benjamin go. But then what will happen? It will have to be the other brothers that put their neck out for Simeon. They'll have to demonstrate the fact that they are willing to risk something to get their brother back. Think about the one brother who was left behind, imprisoned, enslaved. Okay, These brothers have a track record of sacrificing the one brother, right? Of saying, you know what? Too bad, but it's just not worth what it will cost us to do this, to do what we should. And so I think this is uh, Joseph's test to them. He's going to see if the brothers never come back, then he'll know that they still have the same um, calloused and hateful hearts that they probably always have, but that it was not worth risking their own lives and safeties and that of Benjamin to come and rescue their brother. And he will see that they're the same kind of dudes 
that they've always been. If they make the same move again and just look at Simeon and say, sorry, man, those are the breaks, right? That's what happens. But if these brothers will risk their safety for the one brother who is left behind, maybe it will demonstrate that they've had a change of heart. Why? Well, I think this is grace. As we've talked about before, it's different from mercy and different from forgiveness. But Joseph is giving his brothers an opportunity to repent. Okay, Instead of enacting vengeance, and at the very least enacting justice, he extends grace to them. He does not give them what they deserve. And he puts them in a scenario, very contrived, admittedly, where they can make the right decision if they will. So he is open, Joseph is, he is open to their repentance. He is open to reconciliation if he sees that they are people who are willing to be reconciled. Right? I can bring the hammer down if I want to. I can have power and authority, and anyone looking on would call it just. Right? Joseph's position in Egypt, he could do whatever he wanted to. He could probably have their heads cut off right there in front of everybody, and everybody just go, yes, they were, you know, he was mad today about something or whatever. Nobody would even um, bat an eye at it. And yet, Joseph says, no, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to give you an opportunity to repent and see if you are different people. I'm open to that. And guess what? The evidence of that repentance manifests itself almost immediately, I would argue, as we continue to read. We see that in the, the brother's response in verse 21 through 23. Okay, So he has said this to them, and what does it say in verse 21? Then they said to one another, in truth, okay, so they're talking amongst themselves, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now here comes the reckoning for his blood. Okay? And it says, verse 23, They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So this scenario, he puts this scenario out there, and immediately, what do they start saying amongst themselves? They say, This is all happening because of the sin that we committed against our brother Joseph, okay? His blood is on our hands, and God is finally bringing judgment down on us for those things. Um, Joseph has been speaking through an interpreter, but he understands them, although they don't realize it. And so their sin is intensified for us as the reader because it adds stuff to the story that we had not previously known about how they reacted to Joseph all the way back there in chapter 38 or whatever it was when he was sold into slavery. Here's this cool thing. Do you remember, you may or may not have been here that night, but when we were talking about in chapter 37 about Joseph being um, accosted and stripped of his robe and thrown into the pit and then sold into the slavery, one of the interesting things was that we were told nothing about Joseph's response. So he had talked a whole bunch about all his dreams previous to that. But when he is being betrayed, he says nothing. He is silent, at least in the passage, before his accusers. 
And so we made a comment about the fact that there is a typology going on there of Joseph being the righteous, innocent man being accused, and yet he keeps his mouth shut. There's a picture there that we would see. If the only part of the story we knew was that part of verse 37, chapter 37, that's maybe what we would infer from it if we knew the story of Christ as well. But what happens is when we get to chapter 42, we learn more about what happened. And we actually find out that Joseph, in fact, was not silent, that Joseph begged for his life, that he begged that they would not go through with this wickedness, that they looked him in the face as he pleaded with them. They looked at him as the tears were pouring down his cheeks, right? And in their cold-blooded hatred of their brother and jealousy of their brother, they handed him over anyway. And I've got to think that that guilt of that moment had been eating away at them for probably something close to two decades. Guilt is a powerful force. And the Bible says guilt is actually, you know, we're very anti-guilt in our culture. We don't like guilt. Um, and the church often is, is very vocal about saying you shouldn't have guilt. You won't hear me say that. Um, I think guilt is an important thing and a good thing, okay? Guilt is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, if you have repented of that sin and turned to Christ and you're still carrying that guilt around and that is interfering with your relationship with Christ, then that's not what we're talking about. But if, but if we have sinned and we have not repented of that sin, then guilt is a powerful force to get us to repent, to get us to turn back to Jesus. And so that guilt is coming to grips with the reality of it, the sin, of the hurtfulness of it, of the hatefulness of it, of the offense it was to both God and to their brother, to man. Again, it talks about that kind of distinction between the different kinds of guilts in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But we're not talking about a guilt that impedes reconciliation, but, but a, a guilt that actually um, leads us into reconciliation and forgiveness. But the brothers realize they have ha- acted sinfully, and they suspect that now they are receiving the just punishment of their sins. And Joseph hears them say this. Maybe it's those three days in prison that brought this to the forefront. But I have a suspicion that that had been building for years, that this had been the secret, dark family secret that that just the brothers had known about and that they never talked about, but they gave knowing glances about things all during the years about the hurt and the harm and the and the pain that they had caused their family. And in their own hearts, they think, you know what? It's finally time to pay the piper. God is finally bringing judgment on us for our sins. The brothers had taken vengeance on their brother Joseph. They looked forward to putting him in his place. But the crazy thing is, and we all know this, it never feels quite as good once you've gotten the revenge. You think you want it, and then when you've gotten the revenge, you realize that it was a horrific thing. They've lived with this terrible secret, but I think they are experiencing real sorrow over their sin, real contrition over their sin. And you know what their words remind me of? And it sounds a whole lot like to me. It sounds a whole lot like the thief on the cross to me. We have sinned. We are getting what we deserve. 
Just as that thief gives a pretty comprehensive picture of what repentance is, so do these brothers in this passage. We are the ones who are sinners. God is the one who is just, and we're getting what we deserve. And so then what happens in verse 24 through 28 is Joseph takes Simeon into custody. He binds him and takes him away. And the brothers are sent on their way with their food. Um, and then this interesting thing happens too. Joseph takes their money that they were going to pay for their food with and puts it back in their sacks secretly. Now, why he puts that in their sacks um, is debated about among biblical scholars. Some see it as just a demonstration of Joseph's grace to his brothers. He certainly doesn't hold it against them. When they come back, he doesn't use it as part of his ploy. Um, we see later on that when they get back and they say, uh, we're, we just wanted to be up front with you, we found the money that we were supposed to pay back in our sacks. And Joseph says, no, you didn't. Uh, it's, it's, nothing was wrong. Our books are all tallied, you know, they're, the, they're, they're, the, the ledgers are even, right? Um, that was God blessing you. Um, and so you, you don't have to worry about anything. So he doesn't use it as another part of this, this sort of ploy to draw out their repentance. But here's the thing. That's exactly what it ends up happening because we don't know why Joseph did it, but we do see the effect that it has on the brothers. When they get to the stop and they open that bag up and they see that the money that they paid for the food is still in there, you know what it says in verse 28? It says, what is this that God has done to us? Okay? They immediately go, you know what? Our punishment and guilt is intensifying. That's the way they read the events. And so it says in verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said, and Jacob, their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin all this has come against me. I wonder if in that phrase, it's kind of hard to understand exactly what he's thinking. All this has come against me. Is is that Jacob sharing in some of the contrition too? Is that him going, uh, you know what? I have made so many mistakes in my life and now God is bringing these things down on my head. Or is he sort of not taking responsibility and sort of saying, you know, it's just everything bad happens to me, right? Like all these things are bad and it's not my fault, but all these things are bad. We can't know for sure. But you know what I think? I think it's, I think it's repentance. I think it is, is he is recognizing that, that his sins may have incurred a judgment from God. And yet, in the calculus in his head, as he plays out, he responds just as we predicted he would. He says, I will not risk the life of my favorite son to save my despised son. Here's an interesting thing. Is there an illusion there for us? A reminder for those Christians looking back to the Old Testament? Jacob will not trade his favored son for his sinful one. But God will. God sacrifices his favored son, his innocent son. And that's who Benjamin is. Benjamin is the only brother who was innocent of all these crimes. He was not involved in any of the shenanigans. Jesus is the only one innocent in the history of man. And yet God is willing to sacrifice Jesus to save a wretch like me. 
maybe this is why Reuben's response pops up in this passage. So here's the deal. Joseph doesn't see Reuben's response. It's only us that get to see it as the readers. But what Reuben says seems outrageous. Right? Seems crazy for someone to say this. But again, perhaps it demonstrates the real repentance that has taken place and in a strange way, a Christ-likeness even in Reuben. That not only is there sorrow and contrition on the part of the brothers, but at least in Reuben's case, there is willingness to make things right even at great personal cost to himself. That's why in verse 37 it says this, Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. I think Reuben is demonstrating again to the readers, not to Joseph, but to the readers that there is a real contrition that is going on here. That not only do they want to try to save their brother who's in prison, but that Reuben will actually risk the lives of his own sons to accomplish it. All that to say, things in their hearts have changed a lot since they threw their bratty little brother into that pit all those years ago. So I think, as we kind of look at and zoom out just a little bit, I think we've distorted the ideas of grace and mercy out of proportion in some ways. We, the wicked, have looked at God and said, you know what, God is gracious and he'll forgive, that's his job. He's supposed to forgive me. But here's something that we notice in this passage because we see it in Joseph as a type of Christ. God's grace, the grace of Jesus, is first seen in his long suffering towards us. The second Joseph saw his brothers, he could have had them thrown in prison and thrown away the key. He could have had them executed. And no one would have questioned it. And even though he has dealt with the consequences of, of his brother's actions for years, his grace is seen in that he does not act out of haste. He does not act out of rashness. That is the first aspect of grace that types Christ as we see. But there's a second aspect of grace. And it's not just his long suffering, not just his patience in that he gives his brothers an opportunity to repent. Um, so he has suffered it long and long suffering and patience are very similar concepts and words. Um, but that in his patience, he has given now his brothers an opportunity to repent. That's the second piece of grace. Because again, here's the deal. God doesn't owe us that. He doesn't owe you forgiveness. You have sinned against God. And if God wanted to, he could have done what we just said. The second you stepped into his presence in the throne room in Egypt, the throne room in heaven, God could have said, and snapped you out of existence if he wanted to. He doesn't owe you his grace. And yet he has been long suffering with you and he has given you an opportunity to repent. So consider your life. Consider the secret sins that you have in your own heart. The things that you, those little pet sins that you have nursed or ignored the sins that you have never had to live out the consequence of, right? And 
It's easy for us in our hearts to think, well, I pulled one over on God. I've gotten away with it. Or maybe he just doesn't care that much about these things. The question is, is this, how long do we infringe on God's patience? Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If God has not brought judgment down on you for your sin, the answer is, it's because he wants you to repent of that sin. And he's giving you a chance to do that. Romans 2 says a similar thing. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. Now, again, how all that plays together with those who are saved in Christ is, is a little larger discussion. Right? Because we believe that Christ has died for our sin and, and, um, that he has already paid the ultimate price for our sin. And yet we also recognize that there is a kind of judgment that will come to all believers where we will be judged by our works and by our actions and the fruit of our lives. And if we have lived in unrighteous ways and unworthy ways, those things will be burned up. And so we have seen in this passage, Joseph prefigure Christ, not only in, in the long section of the passage, not only in his sonship, not only is his character, not only in his suffering, but now we have seen Joseph in his patient grace towards his people, towards his brothers, in that he does not enact vengeance. He shows his ultimate trust is in the plan and in the justice of God. And just as Jesus could have called down a 100,000 angels in his defense, but instead, even as he's on the cross, he asks God to show forgiveness to his oppressors. That openness to repentance, that openness to forgiveness, in fact, not just openness, but that fostering of repentance, even in the sneaky drama of this story, is a picture of the of God's patience and kindness to the world. That he is bearing with you, waiting on you to repent, giving you every opportunity to repent, maybe even in the context of this story, setting you up for repentance, right? Putting you in a scenario where, man, it would almost seem like the easy thing to do would be to repent and to clear the air. That is no truer for anybody in the world than it is for people in the church, right? Of all people in the world, believers ought to go, I have a safe and secure place to repent. These people are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus Christ has died for me and saved me from my sin. Um, These people will be thrilled if I would repent of my sin and return to Christ and to faithfulness. You know what? I think God has set us up, okay? He has given us the perfect opportunity to repent of our sin. And that's an element and a demonstration of his patience and of his kindness to his people. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I hope that you'll think on those things um, as you examine your own hearts, as you consider 
um, the the your own life and your own actions, um, the own secret places of your heart, and that you will know that um, God calls to you. He says, repent of your sin, turn from it, live in faithfulness, live in righteousness. While there's still time. Gonna pray first. Father God, we thank you for God, your goodness and kindness to us. God, you are so patient. We deserve none of your patience, your long suffering. God, we know we are sinners. We know that we have sinned against you in a way. that warrants your judgment. And yet in your long-suffering kindness, you have made a way not only for us to be saved, God, but for us to walk in in peace and, and right relationship with you on a daily basis. God, if we would turn from our sin, that we would walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God, that you would walk with us. And that we would experience um, the sweetness of fellowship with you. God, help us to do that. God, we each sin in any number of ways. We sin in so many different things. God, we bear those those um, petty grudges and grievances. God, we have done things in our lives that we probably think we've gotten away with. God, help us to repent. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. What gives the grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy. Oh, how strange and divine like <laughs> Thank you.
say thank you to these folks as you leave tonight because man this day just continued to fall apart throughout the day so thank you thank you to both of you for being here and serving on a moment's notice and helping out um um hope you have a great week um we're continuing on through our story i said we'll i think what we're going to do is we're going to end we're going to finish on easter sunday in the story of joseph um and that may be not a normal place to to uh do an easter sermon but man i think there are so many connections between joseph and the story of christ um that i think it'll be uh, it'll be very appropriate so we're going to continue on for another couple of weeks um as we as we approach um Resur- resurrection sunday hope you have a great week um here this benediction as you go may the lord bless you and keep you make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.